Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, traditional Greek culture has been preserved in Tarpon Springs since the early 1900s. Most of the people there do speak Greek, and they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards, which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. We'll discuss the rapid development of Port Tampa Bay in the late 1800s. 1870s, 1880s, and beginning of the 1890s, this is when the Tampa area and the port itself and the Bay region really saw tremendous growth. And we'll talk about country rock pioneer Graham Parsons, who died in 1973 at the age of 26. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the city of Tarpon Springs, you can listen to Greek music, try the tasty pastry baklava, have a meal of lamb stew or a unique Greek seafood dish, sip the licorice-flavored alcoholic beverage ouzo, and enjoy many other aspects of traditional Greek culture. You can see the neo-Byzantine-style architecture of St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church and watch the sponge divers unload their catch on the city dock downtown. Tarpon Springs has the largest percentage of Greek Americans of any city in the United States. Even before the first 500 Greek sponge divers arrived in Tarpon Springs in 1905, a thriving town was already in place. The Diston land purchase of 1881, when Hamilton Diston bought 4 million acres of land for 25 cents an acre, led to the establishment of Tarpon Springs. Diston brought businessman Anson Safford to Tarpon Springs to stimulate development. Tina Bukovalis is curator of arts and historical resources for the city of Tarpon Springs and says that Safford moved into a small dog trot style cracker house. They uh, improved the house by adding a second story and expanding it um, and it became quite a showcase uh, basically trying to show the elegant way that people could live in Florida uh, at a time when this was really in many ways still kind of a frontier town uh, but through the influence of Anson Stafford uh, and uh, Hamilton Diston and, and the wealthy northerners that came in, you know, there did, uh, Tarpon Springs did develop to, be, uh, to become one of the early uh, and very elegant resorts. The Victorian home that Safford created can be enjoyed today. The Safford House Museum features period furniture and original family artifacts that preserve the home as it was in 1883. Soon after Anson Safford began developing Tarpon Springs, the Orange Belt Railway came to the town in 1887. The train depot is now a museum. Sharon Sawyer is archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society, which operates the museum. The building we're in was built in 1909 because the original railroad station burned down in 1908. 
and this was restored in 2005 to its original um, the floors you'll notice in uh, the pine floors out front and also the warehouse floors in the back are the original uh, the walls we've left um, with the writing on it and um, so this is this was um, segregated when it was built uh, there's if you go out front there's a colored waiting room and a white waiting room and there, there was a wall in between the two that was torn down in the 70s not until the 70s um, the station master's room is the next room over and we have exhibits in that and then the warehouse area we have um, pretty much the history of Tarpon Springs uh, that you can go through so it's it's a neat museum Displays at the Tarpon Springs History Museum include profiles of prominent physicians, including Dr. Mary Jean Safford. Mary was Anson Safford's sister and is believed to be the first female physician in Florida. Shelving and bottles from the 1880s drugstore are also displayed, along with artifacts from the Orange Belt Railway. Sharon Sawyer. One thing uh, about the railroad, it was um, brought here by Peter Demons, Demons Landing in St. Petersburg. Uh, he, he brought the railroad from Sanford to Tarpon Springs and then on down to St. Petersburg. And it was supposed to be the longest 12-gauge, um, I guess it is, railroad in the United States at that time. So um, before the railroad came, everybody had to get here by boat or uh, wagon. So the railroad in 1887 made the big difference here in town, I believe. It was the sponge industry, though, that really put Tarpon Springs on the map. By the mid-1800s, there was a thriving sponge industry in the Florida Keys, but by the beginning of the 20th century, Tarpon Springs was the largest sponge port in the United States. While sponges in the Keys were harvested with long poles, in Tarpon Springs, Greek sponge divers donned canvas suits with round metal helmets. Tina Bukovalis explains what makes the Tarpon Springs community unique. Florida is the only place in the country that uh, sponges grow, and, and the sponge industry was the biggest maritime industry in Florida, and we're talking millions in the late 19th century, which was quite something. Um, and um, Key West at that time, you know, in the 19th century was a bigger producer, but uh, once uh, sponges were discovered in this area in 1873, the whole area from here up, up to Apalachicola became a hotbed of sponging. And eventually, um, Tarpon Springs became a market for sponges. Uh, and when Greeks came into this area as uh, sponge buyers, uh, John Kokoros, uh, he realized that the way sponges were harvested in Greece would uh, produce far more than the methods, the hooking methods they were using in Florida. So they brought over Greeks, and um, uh, it was advertised that there was uh, a lot of business to be done here. So uh, at first, 500 came in 1905, and then within a couple years, there were 1,500, and there were lots of boats. And uh, it uh, very quickly made uh, Tarpon Springs the sponge capital of the world. Tarpon Springs was a big, important town at a time when St. Pete was a, a wide place in the road. Uh, and there were buyers here from Europe. Uh, it, it was quite a place. Uh, and um, before long, I mean, within a couple decades, the Greeks were the majority 
or the, well, I would say they were the dominant population element because there were several population elements. There were the there's the Anglo element and the African American, which had a very big Bahamian influence because of the sponge industry. But for a long time, the Greeks were the dominant population element. So the fact that this was a big uh, pocket of Greek culture and has remained so. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago in Miami who's a cultural geographer, and she pointed out that this is the only place in Florida that has such a unique, ongoing, uh, whole cloth pocket of European settlement. There are places with Latin American settlement, West Indian settlement, but European communities, this is, this is unique in Florida. With the large influx of Greek sponge divers and their families to Tarpon Springs, businesses to serve them were established, including restaurants, grocery stores, bakeries, and coffee houses. St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church was constructed in 1907 and expanded in 1943 with marble imported from Greece. The unique Epiphany celebration held on January 6th attracts people from around the world. Following a ceremony at St. Nicholas, the congregation walks to the sponge docks downtown where a wooden cross is thrown into the water. The young man who retrieves the cross is believed to be blessed for the year. The Patriarch of Constantinople, who is the Greek Orthodox equivalent of the Pope, came to Tarpon Springs in 2006 for the 100th anniversary of the city's unique Epiphany celebration. Tita Bukovalis, former folklorist for the state of Florida, explains that there are many examples of Greek culture in Tarpon Springs. I think in, in all instances in which there are large um, bubbles, you know, of population, such as with Cubans in Miami, you know, or Greeks here, you get more of a whole cloth culture. And here, um, the culture has been brought over pretty much whole cloth. Uh, I mean, as, as one writer pointed out, um, when the Greeks came to here, they actually changed their life very little from what it was in Greece because the climatic conditions were very similar. They were in the same occupations. They were living together, you know, and eventually they brought their families over in a certain part of town. You know, they brought the priests and religion in. And basically, it was very much like living in Greece. And so even today, you know, after people have been here, some people for four or five generations, you know, depending how quickly and when they came over, you know. Um, there's still a big segment of the population that speaks Greek. I live in the part of town called Greek Town, and most of the people there are Greek, and most of the people there do speak Greek. And they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards, and which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. And the old ladies in their headscarves will be going over to St. Michael's Chapel or St. Nicholas or whatever, or down to the bakery, the National Bakery down the street, which is a Greek bakery, or to Halki Market, which has been there for 100 years or so. Uh, the men will go, walk right by my house to go to the Caffeinea, which are traditional men's Greek coffee houses. Uh, a lot of them who are old divers and things will go down to the sponge docks, which is a few blocks down the street, and just hang out at the docks to to, ha to hang out with other old guys and see what the divers and things are doing. You know, it's, uh, you know, the people with the gift shops, while it may look like tourist shops, the culture there is very much an active Greek culture. The dominant language is probably Greek. If you go down there, you sp I mean, if I go down there to go to the hockey market, I'll spend two hours, you know, talking to various people. You know, it's like living in a small Greek town uh, with all the ups and downs. <laughs>
The Greek history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved in a new heritage center with exhibits and artifacts and space for public gatherings. Greeks have the dominant culture in Tarpon Springs, but archivist Sharon Sawyer has lived in the city for almost 60 years and says that all people get along in this small community. The Greeks and the Anglos, everyone, as far as I can remember, got along. It was like a, a community project for all of us. Some of my best friends are Greek girls. Some of them are uh, cracker girls. You know, it's it's uh, just, it's still got that small community feeling about it. So there are a lot of people that have moved in, but it still has that small community feeling. You don't find that everywhere. A trip to downtown Tarpon Springs provides the opportunity to see spongers at work sailing into port on boats with unique Greek designs. Tina Bukovalis. There is a special kind of sponge boat that developed in the Aegean, which is called an Akdarmas, which is a type of trahandri, which is a, a type of Greek fishing boat. But this particular boat was designed for sponging, and some of the spongers swear that this is still the best design. Um, and uh, back in the early days and up until, you know, a few decades ago, these, these boats were being produced hundreds and hundreds were produced from here to Apalachicola because Greeks went all the way from here up the coast and were working in maritime industries. So, for instance, the one that's sitting in the middle of the sponge exchange as a display was built in Apalachicola and sailed down here for sale. But, um, yeah, these boats have a, a very different bow, you know, than, than most boats do, different design, you know, but they're very stable and uh, have all the right stuff, you know, to carry the sponges and everything. The last, um, the last boat builder, Greek boat builder, is George Sarukos, who got a, a received a Folk Heritage Award uh, in 2009. And there's only one working Greek sponge boat, um, and it's his last boat that he built, and that's owned by Tasso Karastinos, who, who also won a Folk Heritage Award in 2010. Uh, as a sponge diver and captain. The history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved at the Safford House Museum, the Train Depot Museum, and the Heritage Center. While tourism has eclipsed sponge diving as the economic engine driving Tarpon Springs, it's still the living, active maritime community that attracts tourists to the downtown docks. It is a working waterfront, and um, uh, although the sponge industry has shrunk, um, a lot of the boats, but not all of the boats, still dock there. The city has 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 essentially given them this part of the downtown working docks uh, to have their boats, and they conduct do conduct their business from there. So during a significant part of the year, from from about the beginning of April and of March, you know, to November through November, uh, the the spongers will be. Uh, coming in and going out, and um, you know when they're not uh, uh, having downtime and working on their boats and out there, they are loading, unloading sponges, processing sponges. They are actually the best ambassadors for the town because almost all of them are very articulate and very willing to talk to people and explain what they're doing, and you know are essentially demonstrating the processes right there on the docks. And then, and then surrounding the docks area across the street are various shops. Um, many of them are gift shops, but there's also quite a few restaurants. And it's not just for tourists. That's where locals go, too, all, all the time, you know, so people can experience culture there. Or, you know, some of the shops are full of Greek 
CDs or videos, again, you know, where locals go, you know, so um, people can still come in and have access to Greek culture that way. Tina Bukovalis is Curator of Arts and Historical Resources for the City of Tarpon Springs. We also spoke with Sharon Sawyer, archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. To find out more about Tarpon Springs and their unique Epiphany celebration, go to myfloridahistory.org and watch Episode 8 of our television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today the Port of Tampa is the largest port in the state, handling over 37 million tons of cargo per year and nearly a million cruise passengers per year. But that didn't happen overnight, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. Going all the way back to the early 16th century when Spanish explorers were first traveling around the Gulf Coast of Florida, including Hernando de Soto, they famously landed and and discovered, if you will, uh, what would become Tampa Bay. Uh, it was a, a fairly safe uh, area to, to dock. It was a, a large bay. Of course, it was inhabited by indigenous peoples for thousands of years prior to that time period. When Europeans began exploring the region, they started including this large bay on the maps. But it wasn't until the 19th century, when Florida became a U.S. territory in the 1820s, uh, that the government actually set up a fort there, became known as Fort Brook. And that's the first kind of official settlement in that region after the uh, indigenous populations had either uh, fled the area or had died out from disease and war. But this is right on the cusp of the Second Seminole War. And in the 1830s, Fort Brook became a major location for the emigration of Seminole Indians out of Florida to Oklahoma. A lot of them were actually loaded on ships in Tampa Bay, and the last view they saw of Florida was Tampa Bay, and they were sent out to ports in, in New Orleans and Mobile and places like that and then further inland. And then in 1846, there was a, a Scottish ship captain by the name of James McKay who came to Tampa and is credited with really building up the first port infrastructure, the first wharves, and began a commercial shipping line between other ports around the, the Gulf region uh, and ports in Cuba. He's actually credited with starting the cattle exchange between Havana and Tampa Bay and the Gulf Coast. A lot of cattle that was grown in Florida, raised in Florida rather, loaded on ships and then sent down to uh, to Cuba. And then in the 1870s, 1880s, and beginning of the 1890s, this is when the Tampa area and the port itself and the Bay region really saw a tremendous growth. And that had to do with a series of things kind of happening all at once. In the early 1880s, Francis LeBaron discovered phosphate deposits just outside of, of Tampa Bay within close reach, actually, to Tampa Bay. And that fueled a major phosphate mining industry. And all of that phosphate was, of course, shipped out of, of Tampa Bay. Then you also had the beginnings of the uh, Tampa cigar industry, the beginnings of, of Ybor City, the famous Ybor City. Uh, was all started in, in the 1880s. Then you also had this growth of agricultural interests around Hillsborough and, and what would become Pinellas County. And all of that agricultural material had to be shipped out somehow, and there weren't a lot of viable rail line systems until this fourth factor, a guy named Henry Plant, came along and, and established what became known as the plant rail system, the plant line. And that connected Tampa via inland rail routes with the rest of the southeast and, and the rest of the country. 
Now, you have here a document that shows a request for funding of infrastructure for the port that was presented to the U.S. government. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at is a document entitled International Relation of Tampa Bay, Florida to the United States. And it contains an address that was delivered by a man named S.A. Jones, who was an, an entrepreneur in the Tampa area. It was drafted in 1890 and funded by the Tampa Board of Trade, which had been established in 1885. Now, the Board of Trade was kind of a, a local booster organization, kind of a chamber of commerce. And it, it was comprised of business leaders, uh, real estate people, uh, investors, and, and lawyers, and, and people like that. And they were trying to attract uh, not only private funding, but as you said, federal funding. And this brochure, if you will, was an idea that was kind of hatched by Jones and some of the other entrepreneurs to try and, and put Tampa Bay on the international map and try and tie this port and connect it with the rest of the Americas, with Central and South America. Now, this report was submitted to the Senate Committee on Commerce. And the idea was they were asking for a million dollars to establish a viable steamship mail line between Tampa Bay and a town called Aspinwall in Panama. Now, Aspinwall is now uh, known as Cologne. It's the second largest city in, in Panama, but at the time it was known as Aspinwall. And there was a rail line. This is almost two decades before the Panama Canal was dug. So there was a rail line that connected the Atlantic and the Pacific. So the idea was that we could run a, a mail line from Tampa directly to Aspinwall. Mail could then go over the rail line to the Pacific, and then you could connect uh, to cities in the western part of the United States, San Francisco in, in particular. This is after the, the gold rush, and, and there was a lot of development going on in the western United States. But keep in mind, there isn't a lot of infrastructure connecting the continental western United States with the eastern United States. So everything still had to go by sea. And rather than sailing all the way around South America, they thought they could use this rail line. So they were asking for a million dollars to establish this ship service. It would have been a passenger service, including mail lines as well. But it, it was quite a bit of money. And this really shows kind of the entrepreneurial spirit at the time of all of these factors coming together, the type of, of characters who were involved in developing the port and trying to expand these operations drastically and connect Tampa with the rest of the world, really. So did Congress approve this request for funding? Well, drumroll, please. Uh, unfortunately, no, they did not initially in 1890, even though S.A. Jones had uh, compiled this wonderful address to Congress. And he also uh, connected with a lot of the growers and, and exchange operators up in Chicago and Midwestern cities who were endorsing this plan. It wasn't until 1905 and then again in 1910, 1911, that the U.S. Congress finally appropriated a few million dollars to dredge out the canal. And this is also after the Spanish-American War, which played a major role in Tampa's development because you had an enormous increase in federal interest in Tampa Bay in 1898. So the federal government thought that now Tampa Bay could kind of be brought into this plan. And they started funding more and more operations like dredging and building of commercial wharfs and connecting the downtown city of Tampa Bay at the, the head of the Hillsborough River with the port area itself. So it, it, it did take a little while, but by the 1920s, the port of Tampa Bay was really kind of brought into the modern world. It could be considered a proper port. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see the documents we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org.
This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker has this look at Florida musician Graham Parsons. Won't you scratch my itch, sweet Annie Rich, and welcome me back to town. Come out on your porch or step into your parlor and I'll tell you how it all went down. Floridian Graham Parsons, born in Winter Haven, Florida in 1946, has often been called the father of the country rock genre. Graham Parsons disliked music labels and he preferred to call it cosmic American music. Though he only lived to be 26 years old, Graham Parsons had a profound impact on popular music. I recently talked to author Bob Keeling and hard rock memorabilia historian Jeff Nolan about Graham Parsons, his Florida roots, and his musical legacy. Bob Keeling, author of Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock, told me about Graham Parsons' childhood in Polk County, Florida. His family roots go very deep. His grandfather, John Snively, was the richest citrus baron in all of Florida. Snively Groves, much of Winter Haven, many people who lived in and around there were employed by Snively Groves. So Graham did grow up in a lot of money and a lot of wealth. As a teenager in the 1960s, Graham Parsons was well known in the Polk County music scene. His band, the Shilohs, often played at the Dairy Down music venue in Winter Haven, Florida. After graduating high school, Graham Parsons attended Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, before dropping out to focus on music. Bob Keeling. He had recorded an album with the International Submarine Band, which is, I think, considered an archetypical country rock record. And after he was done with that in late 67, he runs into Chris Hillman, and they strike up a friendship. And Graham and Chris Hillman share this major enthusiasm for country music. And the birds were looking for a direction. So Graham comes along with this head full of ideas and is hired as a sideman in 68. And they go to Nashville and record the very first ever country rock record. I mean, full on, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Graham had left the band by the time the record comes out because the birds were going to tour South Africa and it was apartheid. And Keith Richards, and Graham had taken to hanging out with Keith Richards and the Stones, and Keith was like, I'm not going to play a segregated place. And Graham says, well, I'm not either. So his membership in the birds lasted about six months. But Sweetheart of the Rodeo is just this highly regarded piece of music from 68 when it was not cool to do country. In 1969, Graham Parsons founded the country rock band The Flying Burrito Brothers with Chris Hillman from The Birds. In the early 1970s, he also recorded two solo records featuring duets with up-and-coming musician Emmylou Harris, hard rock memorabilia historian Jeff Nolan. Graham is really kind of the quintessential Florida musician in a lot of ways. I, it's, it's a definitive persona. Graham Parsons, as a singer and songwriter, is one of the most important and influential American musicians of all time. It's that simple. Everything that you think of as Americana, roots music, anytime you hear a band like Mumford & Sons or Wilco or the Avid Brothers or the Eagles, all of that is a direct line back to what Graham did and what Graham brought to existing rock and roll bands. If it weren't for uh, people like Bob Keeling and his book, a lot of this would get lost. And as people in Florida, it's really important as music fans in Florida, it's really important that we honor the legacy of Graham Parsons, know the story, and uh, swagger a little bit. Graham's one of ours. 
While he never experienced a hit record of his own during his lifetime, Graham Parsons' reputation has steadily grown since his death in 1973. His music continues to influence generations of musicians and music fans. To learn more about Graham Parsons' Dairy Down in Winter Haven, Florida, visit www.gpdairydown.com. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.